I've got this in the English Standard Version, um, and it's Philippians um, 3, 3 till the end, uh, well, to help me. 11. 11, thank you, yeah. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Uh, so Colossians 2 verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Amen. Now, the Bible was written a long time ago. And as such, there are some things in the Bible which might seem very strange to us because they reflect a time and a culture very different to our own. Uh, we therefore have to read the Bible with an understanding of its own literary, cultural and historical context. And part of the Spirit's work now is helping us to then apply the Bible's wisdom and principles and lessons to the situations of today. That's not always easy. In fact, sometimes it's quite difficult. Uh, but it's one of the things that makes the Bible a living word in every generation. And it's why the church in every generation 
has to continue asking God for his spirit, his revelation, his discernment, his insight, as we try to apply the Bible to our own context. Now, one subject that might seem very strange to us today is the act of circumcision, which was a really big deal in the Old Testament. And then it became a matter of dispute and reform later on in the New Testament. What on earth are we to make of it as we look back? Is it's, I, I think this is the kind of thing, by the way, that you know, people don't know the Bible and they pick up and look at it. It's probably the kind of thing that some people might read about and conclude, well, this is just another really weird religious thing. Uh, and you know, either they think it just seems daft or maybe even it seems a bit barbaric. Was God really interested in people cutting off a bit of skin from part of the male anatomy, they might ask? I mean, it would seem very strange to say the least if he was. And yet, it was clearly seen as a very important act of commitment by those in the Bible who did this. And still, of course, by Jewish communities today. Now, within the Bible, we see different attitudes towards circumcision reflected at different times. So there are passages in the Old Testament that speak of circumcision as an absolutely essential religious act without which you are doomed. There are other passages still within the Old Testament that see the significance not in the physical act itself, but as a symbol of something deeper, which is what really matters. So some of the prophets spoke of things like that. And things really change by the end of the New Testament when God's community has extended beyond Israel to all the nations of the world. And circumcision by the end of the New Testament is no longer required and has even been described as unnecessary or irrelevant. It makes no difference, Paul says in Galatians. It's not what matters, he says there, and it's no longer required. In Philippians, he even described some who were insisting on everyone being circumcised as mutilators of the flesh. And he says that though, that though he himself as a Jewish man, Paul used to boast in such things as that, he said he now considered them rubbish. So what on earth do we make of this? And what, what might God have to say to us today from this somewhat strange and debated history within the Bible. Well, this passage in Colossians 2 is extremely helpful. So at the time this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, within the Jewish communities that Paul himself grew up in, the circumcision of all males was an essential religious marker. The assumption was that without it, no man had any hope with God. And, th and this went right back to Genesis 17, near the beginning of the Bible, where circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants, Israel. Every male was to be circumcised as a sign of that relationship with God. And any who were not circumcised were cut off from the people. They were excluded from God's promises. So an uncircumcised male was not allowed to go near God's sanctuary, the temple, because they were considered separated from God. Later rabbis said that an uncircumcised male was more unclean than a rotting corpse. Uh, in fact, some said they were as if they were dead. Um, one ancient rabbi described not being circumcised as the blemish above all blemishes for a man. 
And so the Gentiles, meaning many the other nations who on top of everything else were not circumcised, they were regarded as totally unclean, excluded by default, not just spiritually, but even physically. Uh, any, and any male outsider from another place who wanted to think of entering God's community had to go through certain rituals and the first of them was circumcision. That's a pretty difficult evangelistic strategy, isn't it? But there we are. Now, if that was the world that Paul had grown up in, and in fact, Paul, before he became a Christian, had been a prominent leader in that community as a Jew, what on earth changed his mind? Because in Colossians 3 verse 11, late next chapter of this letter, he says that in the community of Jesus Christ, being circumcised or uncircumcised just doesn't matter, he says. And in Galatians 5, verse 6, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Now, what changed Paul's mind? Well, what changed his mind was Jesus. As he says in Colossians 3, verse 11, Christ is all and in all now. It's all about Jesus now. However, before Paul had said any of this, already before that, in the Old Testament, there had been an understanding that circumcision was about more than just a bit of physical surgery for the men. Uh, it, in itself, that wasn't really the point. And even the Old Testament talked about this. It was supposed to be a sign of something much more important. It was supposed to be a sign of their lives being set apart for God and of them being faithful to God by loving God and loving their neighbors themselves, which is what the Old Testament law had said they should be and do. So, for example, when the people of Israel in the Old Testament, when they went astray from God in their hearts, so they, they would sometimes turn to other gods, when they ignored what God had done for them and what God had said to them, when they lived in very unjust and selfish and sinful ways, when they caused harm to one another, God would sometimes say that their hearts were uncircumcised, their hearts. He said it like that, for example, in Leviticus 26, also in Jeremiah chapter 9, where he said the nations and the whole house of Israel, he said, is uncircumcised in heart. There was another occasion where he was saying they weren't listening to God. The people were not refusing to, they were refusing to listen to God. And in Jeremiah 6, God said their ears were uncircumcised. Now you see his point there. Uh, you know, physical circumcision was a picture. It was a picture of your heart or your listen, your ears or your, in other words, your life. Circumcision was supposed to be a picture of your life being attentive to God, being loyal to God and to the needs of your neighbor. So when they didn't do that, when they went astray from God, God would urge them sometimes to perform this inner heart surgery. That is what really mattered. He urged them, circumcise your hearts, meaning what he meant by that, of course, was turn back to God. Live in God's ways. Love God and love your neighbor. For example, so a couple of examples of this. Deuteronomy 10 said, the Lord has set his affection on you and loved you. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and do not be stubborn. Jeremiah 4, God said, return, return to me. Put away terrible things, no longer go astray. Speak truthfully, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, 
speak in a just and righteous way and then the nations will be blessed and join you in glorifying God like breaking up hard soil circumcise yourselves to the Lord circumcise your hearts you men of Judah and you people of Jerusalem so that is what this what might seem very strange to us but that's what this ancient act of circumcision was meant to point to a heart committed to God and to God's loving ways. As I say, it might seem very strange to us in our culture and our day, but that is what it signified for them. Paul would explain it in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul, same person who wrote Colossians, he also wrote it, this in Romans 2, and in Romans 2 he's speaking there to a church made up of both Jewish and Gentile Christians, and he says, look, circumcision, remember, is not outward and physical, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, he says. It is done by God's spirit, not just by the letter. So you see what Paul's saying there. True circumcision, he said, is always meant to be about your heart. That's what matters, Paul says. And, and right from the beginning, that deeper reality of our hearts was always what it really was about. Now, there was a very important passage in Deuteronomy 30, and this is really important for what Paul now says in Colossians 2, which we're looking at. So in Deuteronomy 30, God described how he knew the people would go astray. But he spoke to them about a future time when he was going to do something wonderful for them. He spoke about bringing them home to himself again. And then in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he said this. He said, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your being so that you may live. Now, that was an incredibly important passage because God was not just telling them like he did elsewhere to circumcise their own hearts. Mm -hmm. Did you notice the difference? He wasn't just telling them to change themselves in Deuteronomy 30. He was promising them that one day, when they had failed to do so, God would do it for them. I will circumcise your hearts. I will make you new. I will change you. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and then you will live. One day, God himself, in other words, would perform that heart surgery that will truly change us. Now, we then fast forward to the first century, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the Colossians, and listen to what he says. In Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision not done by human hands, but by the removal of the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Now, quite complicated in the Greek. The NIV tries to sort of clarify it a bit in English. It translates it like this. In Christ, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. What Paul is saying there is that through Jesus Christ, a deeper kind of circumcision has taken place in the Colossian Christians not some skin cut off on the outside of a human being, but God making their hearts new inside. And Paul's point then makes a lot of sense, of course, when we remember 
Deuteronomy 30 and what God had said he was going to do. One day, God himself would perform a deeper kind of surgery on our hearts. Not, it's not one that's done by human hands on the outside of the body. This would be something God would do by God's hands in our hearts so that we will love him and will have life. And I think Paul is now remembering that probably, and he's saying to the Colossians in Colossians 2, that's exactly what God has now done for us through Jesus Christ. And then he goes into verse 12. Remember again, Deuteronomy 30 had said that that new kind of circumcision done in our hearts by God would result in us being made alive. You will, he said, I will circumcise your hearts so that you may, may live. Okay, Implying there, God's implying there, it's like we were dead, but God will make us alive. What does Paul say here in verses 12 and 13? Having been buried with Christ in baptism <clears throat> and raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ, forgiving us all our sins. Paul has seen something amazing. He's seen what has happened. He sees what God has done for us through Jesus. The promise of Deuteronomy is now happening in the lives of people as they trust in Jesus and they receive from God a new heart and a new life. And so the old outward physical circumcision, that's why Paul ends up concluding it's no longer necessary. Why? Because the real circumcision, the, the thing that everything else was pointing to anyway, that God spoke of in the Old Testament, that's now happening in the lives of people as they turn to Jesus. The removal, not of a bit of skin, which isn't going to save anyone, but the removal of our sinful selves, the giving of new hearts to us, the, the, the death and then the new life that God promised to us, which brings us back to himself so that we love him, love our neighbor. And that's what God does for us in Jesus. <clears throat> They use, I mean, think about some of the things Paul says in the New Testament elsewhere. You know, he, he was a Jew, and they used to say that being uncircumcised separates us from God. But now, Paul can tell us in Romans 8, we've got something better to hear from Jesus. He says, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God because it's in Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing, Paul says, can separate you from God now because it's all about Jesus. And so a rather strange religious rite from the past involving the men has now become something, I, I think, much more understandable and life-changing for everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul points out in verse 12 that Christian baptism now portrays that very thing. Just like physical circumcision was supposed to be a sign of the inner reality, baptism now, thank you, Lord, uh, baptism now is the outward sign of what God has done for us in Christ. Buried in baptism, he says, brought up, raised up in new life through in Jesus. He says it like, and he says it like this. He's, it, it's, it's kind of, we'll think about the next bit next time, but he says, look, when Jesus went to the cross, he says a lot about the cross in this passage, by the way. When Jesus went the cross to the cross, one thing is this. It's like he gathered us all up into himself on the cross 
so that when he died, our old selves, our sinful, uncircumcised selves died with Jesus. Who we were when we kept straying from God, ignoring God, doing what we thought we should do when it was causing trouble. That died with Christ on the cross. And when Jesus rose from the dead, Paul says, our new selves, who we can be now in God, rose with Jesus. The, the, a new reality of who God says we are in Christ. We're forgiven. We have new hearts. We have a new life. That's what rose from the dead with Jesus. Us, we, our new life rose from the dead with Jesus. And Paul says that's what your baptism as a Christian symbolized. The old me buried, dead with Christ, but the new me raised up and alive with Christ. So essentially, God says what happened to Jesus happened for you. Okay? And that means, you know, what is, what is your life as a Christian now? Your life, above anything else, is characterized by resurrection. It is characterized by the new life of Jesus Christ. I know you might not feel like that every day, whether physically or emotionally, but it is, a, it is God's promise. This is how God sees you. You are a risen life in Christ already. And yes, I know we also believe when we die, we'll rise physically, but already you're a new person in Christ. And that's a challenge, of course. But my goodness, what a joy and encouragement as well. And, and this is really what I want you to take with you from what we've thought about this morning. Paul says to us as Christians, you have Jesus. And as Jesus people, your lives are 100% resurrection lives now. That is how God sees you. You are risen in Christ. Remember your baptism, Paul says, when you came up out of the water. You are washed. You are made new. Don't, and the point of this whole chapter is don't let your heart and your life and your mind go back to the old dead ways of before. That's been stripped away. It's been cut away, shall we say. It's been buried together with Jesus and the new reality of who you now are, created new by the grace of God, that's risen up to life in you. That's who you are now. And Paul in this chapter is urging us as Christians to remember that is who we are. That is who God has made us in Christ. So live as that. Live as the people God has made you in Christ. Remember what it's for. So that you may love the Lord, he said in the Old Testament, and live. So that you may truly be alive. Live in that wonderful gospel. Live out that wonderful gospel in your life. The new reality of what Jesus has done for you with all its possibilities, with all its hope with all its impact in the world around us. It is a hope that even death could not take away because Christ is risen.